Here we go. Um, as informal as ever. Um, hello, guys. I hope you're well. Good to see a couple of you are still starting to join us already. Um, as promised, we've talked over the past kind of few weeks. I put a few few posts into the group to get Ollie into into the group and onto kind of the podcast and to record a bit of a session in and around kind of stress resilience, well being, um, how you can support your clients in them areas. And we're going to dive into different aspects of that today. Um, it's great to have you on, mate. Thanks for giving us your time. Pleasure. The joy is mine. Um, joy. Do you want to give your intro? Because as I said prior to this, I normally butcher the hell out of them. Oh, it might be my honour. I'm, I'm happy with any intro. I normally do a long intro and people are sort of dial off about halfway through. But principally, uh, I call myself a physiologist. It's not really a, a recognised profession. No one knows what that is. I, I did exercise physiology. So back in the back in the the nineties, I won't say with the beginning or the end, uh, but back in the nineties, when you literally, you know, you, you did exercise physiology to become a PE teacher. That was pretty much all there was for us. Um, I came out of exercise physiology, went into health screening, where you go for like your annual MOT at the doctors. Got really into that world um, and worked with um, with other professionals to try and create a slightly new profession that sat between exercise physiology, you know, working with athletes and, and fine-tuning conditioning and performance, but also not medicine dealing with, you know, acutely dysfunctional people or relatively dysfunctional people. And I got really interested in the, the physiology of well-being, as in what's the driving factor behind how well all three of us feel on this call now? What's the science of stress? What's the science of nourishment above and beyond um, body composition? What's the science of uh, musculoskeletal pain? Most people get it. Most people don't have a big anatomical problem. And in, in that interest, um, I was able to then write the qualification that Nuffield used to create the health and well-being physiology team. So I was the original um, professional head of physiology at Nuffield Health, where we sort of took what nurses used to do and then made it into a new, a new skill set where we would take the sort of measures nurses used to take, but also now measures on heart rate variability to talk about stress, measures of antioxidants to talk about nourishment, um, and then measures of musculoskeletal quality. So we did biomechanical analysis to look at injury predisposition. So my, my role was sort of born out of creating that original physiology team and then spent 13 years delivering the world's most advanced health assessment on Harley Street, sort of medical district. I've done that four times now, but these are, these are phrases that, that may not mean anything to anyone. So it's a really bizarre medical street in london where every window and every in every building is some kind of medical or pseudo medical offering and it's a bit of a global center for for health tourism and 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 in some cases medical excellence and so for a long period of time it would be a sort of fifteen thousand pounds to come and see myself and the and the clinical team to do the the sort of ultimate health mot and that was really interesting in seeing what is now available to be measured in human health and physiology and, and what still can't be measured. And then latterly, probably reason for being on the call, I set up Future Practice, which is a, a an education, um, an ed tech business really designed to try and take fitness or, or exercise professionals and teach them lots of the things that I've learned that would have been useful for me to know 20 years ago. And I set that up with Harry Jameson, who's a sort of well-known well-being consultant and, uh, and, and prominent chap to try and move fitness out of just movement prescription into broader lifestyle prescription, like guiding people on stress, sleep, you know, toxicity, mindset, and a whole range of things that, that we feel are extremely valuable to the end product, but may not be traditionally trained in degrees or existing training. 
Um, also work as clinical director for a sort of a, a hospitality group called Pillar, who are trying to transform well-being delivery within hotels uh, and do some corporate well-being consultancy where I go to organizations and chat about why they could live a little bit longer and a little bit better if they change their behaviors. That's not too bad. No, you've done well at it. And with the experience that you have and the knowledge that you have and everything that you've kind of been through over the years, we've got we could dig into a hell of a lot, but we've chose to kind of stick in and around the the well-being and stress resilience factor. Um for I suppose and where that plays a role for the everyday kind of fitness professional in a commercial or a private gym. Um we talked we talked before we seen you at performex and we sat in your talk on scope of practice and that's a, another broad discussion that we could go into but i think first of all if we could start again leaning towards the future practice stuff like how would you define kind of the well-being side of things and i suppose is fitness ready for that whole well-being good question good question i, I think no one knows whether anyone's ready for well-being because it's so poorly defined right so if you start with what is the definition of well-being? If you go to the sort of the dictionary definition, it's a state of being comfortable, healthy, or happy. So because that doesn't mean anything to anyone, it means that the biggest contributor to global well-being and wellness is skin creams, you know, you know, cos cosmetic products. So to an extent, anyone who makes you healthier, which is which is a, a bigger definition, but anyone who makes you happier or comfortable could class themselves as a well-being professional. So with such a terrible, loose definition, you could say, yeah, fitness fits within there, but I don't think it owns well-being as much as it could. You know, I think when I, when I did the scope of practice talk that, that you fine gents came and supported me, and there were at least three of us in the room for that one, which was good. <laughs> uh, you know, but on that talk, what am I talking about with scope of practice? It's, it's the fact that I think the, the fitness professional can be the well-being professional if we start to reframe what, what well-being means. So for me, well-being is this idea of is my physiology flourishing <clears throat> and my physiology will flourish based on whether all the positive things that affect my physiology today outweigh all the negative things that affect my physiology on a i say today over a chronic period plus minus my genetics right so we're so today across different domains lots of things affect my physiology positively and negatively and whether i feel good and the biggest commodity of that feeling would probably be energy so whether I have a good volume of available energy, that's cognitive energy to think clearly, that's emotional energy to, to bolster relationships around me, but that's also physiological energy to not be beholden to caffeine, beholden to stimulants, monster energy drinks, other drinks are available, um, to being argumentative to adrenalize myself, to being beholden to things that, that you know, refine carbohydrates that drive more energy, then I would say that there's an argument to look back at all the factors that interface with my physiology positively and negatively and try and get those scales in a better position and i think what i found really interesting about well-being is it's done a little bit of what medicine did back in the day which is subspecialized unbelievably right so if you go to harley street there will be a you know endocrinologist looking after hormones there'll be a gastroenterologist looking after your digestive there'll be a neurologist looking at your neural system there'll be a orthopedic consultant specializing in left knees you know and again heaven forbid you go to them with a right knee problem because they've subspecialized so much down so they can be a really good surgeon or really clever at the, at the the complex stuff but we've divided the body into a whole load of biological systems that don't really exist and and well-being's done a similar thing it's divided itself into movement specialists 
and then you've got nutrition specialists over here then you've got a sleep specialist then you've got a stress specialist then you've got a mindset specialist then you've got an environmental toxicity specialist and the body again it doesn't necessarily see the world in those different domains it sees all the positive things that affect it and all the negative things that affect it and some will be in the movement so positive movement if i if i go for a walk that's positive if i sit on my sofa that's a negative inflection if i eat nourishing vegetables that's a positive inflection if i eat hyperpalatable processed food that's a negative inflection if i go to sleep having just watched you know something terrifying on netflix you know two seconds before i close my eyes that's a negative inflection on my sleep if i go to bed with rituals and routines that's positive stress same 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 so every day people are making thousands of decisions around the things that they do without perhaps understanding what the interplay of that with their physiology is and how that nets out and how they feel coming back to the actual question you know for me i think fitness is subspecialized to movement too aggressively and of course at all areas of, of health and well-being there is that specific high-end need at the, at the top end athletic training you know, your crossfit community your um your aesthetic competition you know the, the people who really need movement at a, at a precision precise you know high level level but most people need movement and nutrition and sleep and stress and all those other things and they need to be able to make a, a better informed decisions and i think fitness should be able to be more of a holistic practitioner able to give end-to-end -end lifestyle advice not movement plus right if i'm going to give someone advice on how they're on how to change their well-being let's imagine they already move really well and let's imagine they train quite a lot if i don't then have capability in nutrition and eating if i don't then have capability in stress if i don't have capability in sleep I, I sort of can't solve their problems and i don't want to be someone who can't solve the problems of the people in front of me gosh where to even start to unpack that um i think first of all just before we go into any more questions i was kind of sitting there with my pt head on i'm, I'm sat in a commercial gym i'm fairly new to the industry because that's where most commercial gym pts go and fitness professionals and there is always this element of insecurity around knowledge of like and then because of that it can come across in a probably a direct way like we need to do more i need to impress i need to build value i need to keep these people in my business but also like we're dealing with people who like you've just said have mounts of stress that could come off in different directions and different ways whether that's inactivity poor nutrition poor sleep poor well-being in total like just off the back of that, if you don't mind, what advice would you give a personal trainer who knows that they aren't the expert in these fields, but know it's going to play a huge role in the behaviors that their clients make, create, and what will cause them to, I suppose, then enable them to get a result? Because most personal trainers these days are more savvy to around to, to think that behavior change is more than just moving more and eating less. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So is there any advice that you could give to them? Um that I suppose will support them to look in the right direction. I know we're going to get into future practice and stuff like that later, but where, where would you even start? Like, Always oh, a tricky one, that. As a, as, a, as a killer question early on, nailed it. It's, it's a challenge, right? Because I, I always prefer the practitioner who takes that view in terms of I, I won't talk about what I do not know, right? I'll, I'll do no harm. And, and that person is eminently trainable. You know, I, when, when I used to run the Nuffield physiology team, we'd always ask a question that was sort of an impossible question in the interview process, not to be a complete dick, but because the ability to go great question, don't know the answer is, is a fundamental skill if you're going to progress through the world of, of well-being, particularly into sort of more clinical well-being execution, because nobody knows it all. 
right? Nobody knows it all. So to start off with, I don't know the answer. Let me have a think and find out about that is great. You know, and I can ask questions I don't necessarily know the answer to as long as when the, when, you know, if, if I say, like, how are you feeling? And the person says, oh, I'm, I'm in turmoil because my marriage is breaking down. Say, okay, that, that's going to be a significant impact. What I'm going to focus on is making you move today really well. I'm going to stay within di- my domain and I'm going to be confident that quality movement is going to improve how you feel about your marriage breakdown because movement affects everything. Mm-hmm. So when you start off with movement, you can almost get into any conversation because if I turn around and go, oh, I've got, I'm having chemotherapy or I'm, you know, struggling with concentration at work or I'm getting a divorce. If you take someone's baseline movement and you improve the quality of it, you will diminish the likelihood of that thing making them unwell. So I'm always happy to start off with bigger questions, but come back to the fact that the intervention I'm going to recommend yeah. is going to be in my domain. I'm not going to go, oh, that's definitely meditation for you, or that's, you know, you need to do, um, you know, sound bowl healing, because, that, you know, I, I saw a really good video on that the other day. Um, so I think you ought to be careful with the intervention. When you control the intervention that's within your domain, you can start to build your 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 questioning and capability outside of that. And my steadfast belief, you know, is is that if you improve your movement quality, your nutrition, your sleep, your stress, whatever the person is worried about, complaining about will improve. We talk about underlying physiology in future practice. If I improve your underlying physiology, then whatever you came to me worried about will most likely improve. And we, we've, we've, particularly medicine has got very much a symptom down approach. You've got high blood pressure, I must get your blood pressure down. You've got high blood sugar, I must get that and your risk of diabetes down. You've got depression, I've got your that risk down. But it doesn't do what's called root cause analysis to go, the same thing causing blood pressure, blood sugar and depression could be an absence of movement. If I make your physiology work better, whatever is going wrong with you is less likely to affect you significantly. Mm-hmm. So I think step one is to say, yep, boundaries are absolutely critical. If you're the guy who knows everything, then then you you can't operate in any space I'm associated with. You know, you've got to have a, a that's where that talk was about scope of practice. That's right. Yeah. We start small and we say, I know what I know. I can ask more, but I'll control the interventions I control. But then, you know, fundamentally, you know, that the reason I set up future practice is, you know, with Harry was we couldn't believe there wasn't formal training in these areas that affected people that much, but were being left to the discretion of the individual, whether they brought them in or not. Because, you know, you, you'll you know from the, you know, you, you and Nick, there's no one that stress doesn't affect yet in our traditional training, be that degree level, be that, you know, you know, the, the, the professional skills academies, there's no formal understanding of that. So my, my desire of future practice is yes, there's a commercial desire, but it's fundamentally born out of the idea people aren't getting as good lifestyle advice as they should. And we need people giving better lifestyle advice. Yeah. So God, with that being said, then where does stress kind of resilience fit within a kind of PT's toolbox? Yeah. There's another belter. I think firmly in the middle, you know, we got stress originally perceived as being a psychological issue. So I can't talk about stress. I'm not a psychologist. Well, we've known from the 1930s that when you stressed rats, stressed them, they, they, they sort of made these rats uncomfortable. They got physically ill. So we know stress becomes physical. We know if we look at the data, people with high stress levels have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, certain forms of cancer, you know, mood disorders, be that depression, anxiety. Um, stomach ulcers, stress doesn't sit here. It goes through here, but it ends up in the body. And if I'm a specialist in physiology, then I've got to see if I can not always try and change the way I think, but try and change the way my body reacts to the way I think. Mm. Coming one step back, 
stress affects everybody, right? So, you know, and, and that's because stress is a positive thing. So, we, you know, there is a stress in getting up in the morning and in, there's a stress in having to go to work. There's a stress everywhere. And we're, what we're really interested in is the point when all the positive stresses overwhelm our ability to cope and we start to move into negative stress. And people back in sports performance might remember the pressure performance curve. Yeah. Yeah, halcyon days of studying yeah. that, you know, as in, and we used to use it in the phrase of, there'll be a certain level where with no pressure, there's no performance. No. Then as pressure increases, performance goes up. Then I move into too much pressure. The pressure overwhelms my ability to cope. And that's where we see a dip in performance. And that used to be called choking in sport. Right. So it'd be like, why, why did, and again, I'm sure he's not on this call, but Asafa Powell, the, the Jamaican sprinter, was an example of someone who you know was amazing in his nationals and, and regionals, but never delivered his PBs at Olympics or Worlds because it was deemed that the pressure in those situations overwhelmed his mental, his emotional ability to cope and his running time decreased. Now, that pressure performance curve is, is pretty transferable to the, the, the general world. We all face a volume of things that affect us, but at some point that volume exceeds our ability to cope. And that ability to cope is yet partly about the way I think, but it's also how much my body can buffer. And what's become interesting is seeing stress rising up the ranks of the, the leading contributor to health and dysfunction to the point that stress-related sickness absence, so people being off work because of stress, overtook back pain, which has always been number one. You know, we've got 85% you know, lifetime incidence of non-specific back pain or, or, or back pain, of which another 80 or so percent is non-specific. But that, that's a lot of people. But stress has overtaken that. And that's also being accelerated by COVID. So that volume of pressures most people are facing, be that now a new pressure in managing COVID or a new pressure in job insecurity or a new pressure in rising gas prices, has overwhelmed people's ability to cope. And we're seeing increasing physical dysfunction from stress. So there won't be a person in your gym who isn't being affected by stress positively or negatively. But we're seeing the volume of people where it's affected negatively enormous. So then we get to the point where, well, then what do I do about that? Right. So I'm, I'm not a psychologist. And there's three tiers of where I could solve that problem. And we, we call that environment, cognition and resilience. So if I've got too many pressures on me, point number one is, can I change the pressures that are upon me? If my, if my biggest pressure was my commute, can I change my job, right, for example? So if I'm a life coach, I'm going to get paid a lot of money to sit with you and go, you guys tell me you know, all the things that really bug you. And, and then how do we get rid of those things? And then you'll pay me hundreds of pounds an hour for that. Uh, not me, others. And then it's a bit more complicated than that. But life coaching is, is okay, wh where am I structuring? The, the volume of pressures has overwhelmed me. How do I decrease them or delegate them or get rid of them? If I go that I can't get rid of my job because I love it, but I hate the commute, then can I change my cognition? So the biggest factor in how much stress we will encounter is how many stresses we see. Right, so the biggest, uh, we, we know that optimists live longer than pessimists. Why? Well, a pessimist will catastrophize situations. An optimist will, will optimize situation. And a good example, which isn't strictly accurate, but don't, don't hang me out to dry, would be on a, I used to have a fear of flying. So in this example, if I change my environment, don't get on the plane. Very B.A. Baracus for those children of the 80s. Don't get on the plane. So don't get on the plane, but I've got to get on the plane because otherwise my wife will divorce me and, and no one goes on holidays. So I've got to get on the plane. So, but I'm sat on the plane and then everyone else on the plane is relaxed, but I'm sweating, I'm breathing hard, I'm having a clear sort of moving towards a panic attack, I'm having a stress reaction. So the environment is the same for everyone, but I perceive something that isn't happening. What I perceived is 
not the plane taking off and going holiday. I perceive a plane crash and my physiology is preparing for a plane crash and it's actually preparing to grieve me in the wreckage of the burning flames. So I've taken what is the present and I've gone to a darkened future. So in that situation, my mind has created the stress. And what we find is most stresses and pressures exist purely because the brain has taken us out of the present state into the future. That's a major reason why mindfulness meditation has become a 21st century band-aid because there's a huge volume of pressures on everyone and mindfulness brings you into the, the present moment, thereby taking your physiology out of a fight or flight dynamic into being restful. But I digress. I'm not saying change the client's mindset. Now, if I'm on that plane and I'm on it and I don't like it, if I've had caffeine, that'll make it worse. If I got hammered the night before on too much booze, that will make it worse. If I can't control my breathing, that'll make it worse. If I don't have visualization, that'll make it worse. If I did a little low intensity cardiovascular session before I got on the plane, that will make it better. If I, um, when I get to my hotel that night, get a proper night's sleep to compensate for the one I lost, that will make it better. So I can be on that plane with a fear of flying, but if I control my lifestyle, I'm less likely to get dysfunctional from that. And that's really what we're talking about with resilience is saying, let's accept the world is the, is the world. Let's not try and change the way people view it. But can we adhere to certain behaviors that would decrease the likelihood of the same thing making me unwell? Mm. And that sits in, how am I moving? How am I eating? How am I sleeping? How am I breathing? And these are things that we're being sent product information on. Wim Hof's controlling cold water breathing, headspace controlling meditation, you know, uh, adaptogenic teas are telling us about, you know, ashwagandha to, to mitigate excessive stress hormones. We've got a product-led marketplace dominating really what are the physiological traits behind resilience and, and, and being buffered from the impact of stress. I don't know if you've got any questions on this, Nick, because I'm, I'm about to, um, I was just going to ask some more, but I'm so conscious of time and we've got more questions. But mm. can, I, can I just jump in just quickly? I know you'll probably have something to say, Nick, but do you know, I keep coming back to like, I'm, I'm trying to bring this back. So a personal trainer kind of watching and listening to this, they've identified that. And clearly this also comes back to the understanding of the person, how you're coaching that level of understanding of the person, how you're listening as a coach and how you're asking the right questions, getting the client to reflect. And actually the clients now become self-aware that stress is, or them being stressed in, numerous things whether that's job relationship or whatever is affecting their progress in relation to their goal right yeah yeah i'm a personal trainer and i'm a coach right now taking into account what you've just said and i've just said um how how do you approach that apart from obviously i've just gone through the 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 communication side of it and the coaching side of it how do you approach that with a client who because personal trainers are going to sit and listen to this and go, yeah, no, but I'm also under pressure to get clients in my business, to keep clients there, to get paid, to get people yeah. results. And you've got this. And I was the same for the first five, eight, before I understood the basic levels of coaching and communication. I was the same, right? I need to solve this problem. Do you understand yeah. what I mean? Totally. What advice would you give personal trainers who are in that battle and mindset of, yes, I want to support my client, but it's really hard then because I'm in this position too. Yes, we need to do no harm, but at the same time, is there any advice that you would give off the back of that? 
it's a, it's a good one. And, and I'm not I'm not pitching the course, but I covered the process in the course because you've got to get onto safe territory first and yeah. foremost. Because you know, because there you're in the you're right in the mix. Am I going to be talking about someone's divorce? Am I going to be talking about things? I think you know the, the interplay between the word stress and the word recovery is really important because recovery is safe territory, stress isn't. But what is the you know what is the what is the actual physiological impact of excessive stress? It is that we go into a neurological state of hypervigilance and a physiological state of hypervigilance, i.e., let's go back a step. We know our body never really evolved to deal with stress that was non-physical. Right? So I'll deal with, you know, a, an argument with my wife in the same physiological pattern as I would deal with someone, you know, pulling a knife on me on, on the high street. In both situations, my body recognizes threat. And in both situations, it prepares me physiologically to get out of danger. What we've got, and, and that's what we used to call fight or flight, they were all stress and fight or flight. That's an interesting example because when I first started measuring the impact of stress, I thought on executives, I'd find them super stressed. I'd find them in a state of super fight or flight. So it'd be my job then to try and, to try and get them out of that state or change the things that were putting them into fight or flight. Mm. What we're seeing with stress when we measure it, and we can measure it through heart rate variability and cortisol, and I'll, I'll talk, talk on those more if interesting, but you can quantify whether someone's being overwhelmed by stress. And the byproduct is when you look at most people physiologically, they, they don't have too many fight or flight reactions. They have inadequate rest and digest reactions. I.e., if I looked at the physiology of the average, you know, stressed executive, that's six, five, seven, um, then they are inadequately recovered rather than excessively stressed. Now, physiologically, they're the same thing. Right. In, in technical layman terms, I'm talking about an inadequacy of parasympathetic nervous system tone, which, again, is, is, is the raw piece of information I'm looking at. In that situation, I would say an inadequate baseline of physiological recovery means I can't get the gains from my session because, as you know, training is damage. Recovery is growth. Right. So I don't, I don't grow when I'm training. I rip. I create inflammatory signaling. I, I, I tear apart human physiology because my body recognizes that it couldn't deal with the weight I was lifting and now it will rebuild itself to a higher capability over the following period. That only works in the basis of quality recovery. So recovery is the bedrock of growth and that's growth both musculoskeletally, that's growth aerobically, that's also growth emotionally and all things. We need rest to grow. Perpetual being ready for stress kills the quality of our recovery. And so when I'm looking at a client I'm saying, First of all, there's obviously cue questions. There's, there's structured conversation to have about this. But I'm not going to, I think you're too stressed. I'm saying this pattern looks like you are paying insufficient attention to recovery. And what are the things that bolster recovery? It will be perhaps reduced movement intensity and frequency, perhaps, or perhaps increase. But it will probably be a diet richer in fiber where I have to chew, which engages digestion. It'll probably be a breathing pattern that's less upper respiratory, more diaphragmatic and slower. It might be some hot, cold exposure. It will certainly be your relationship with sleep, which is your richest source of recovery and the area most affected when your body believes there to be a perpetual threat. Mm. Right? So if I'm in that overwhelmed situation, sleep is completely counterintuitive because it's when I'm vulnerable. So I'll never let myself go into slow wave or deep sleep because if I believe evolutionary that that's, that that stress is a likely physical threat in deep sleep where I'm truly disengaged physiologically, I'm, I'm most vulnerable. So the average person who's, again, overwhelmed, has got too much stress, is under-recovered, 
and that absence of recovery will kill their ability to get gains. It affects their immune system negatively, it affects their digestion effectively. And in many cases, you could draw the physiology of under recovery to the modern health problems we see, diabetes, stomach acidity and reflux, um, depression and fatigue. All these things could be drawn with a, either a hard line or a, or a penciled line to inadequate physiological recovery. So my starting hypothesis with my client is, unless you're, flurry, in, unless you're flying, and I'll, I'll judge it on your energy, I'll, ju I'll judge it on your progress, all those other things, then it's likely adding in more recovery strategies will get us to the result you're interested in quicker. Cool. Nick, I don't know if you want to dig into that further, mate. I'm hogging this. I'm, I'm aware I'm hogging it as usual. Um, hmm. Real simple, I think my question is, um, how, if, if, if PT's watching this back, how do I, how do I sell that? Yeah. So how do I like, how do I package that up or, or, or do you know what I mean? How do I bring yeah. that to the market? I think it's a, it's a, it's a simple, but, but perfect question. I think, you know, on one level, what we're talking about here is on a simple level is being more effective, right? So I had a client once who had a personal trainer five days a week, you know, was, was fundamentally on a um, calorie restriction. They were doing a, a food delivery through one of the, you know, one of the homemade, you know, fresh fitness foods, etc. Um, delicious, nutritious stuff, but on a severe calorie restriction. And they were coming to a, an advanced medical clinic because they couldn't lose weight. So we're assuming there was going to be some kind of hormonal intervention. What we found when we measured them physiologically, and we used heart rate variability, that they had inadequate recovery. And that was hindering weight loss, despite the presence of a calorie deficit. And you can argue about whether everything's calorie deficit or not, in, in most cases true, but not in all cases. So we had a situation where we had a, a genuinely odd scenario. We then reduced training volume. We swapped from HIT to Pilates. We added a lunchtime walk and we took away the calorie restriction and that individual lost weight significantly. Not only did they lose weight, they came off a medication for their blood pressure, a medication for diabetes, a medication for depression, a medication for stomach reflux and a medication for a sore knee, an anti-inflammatory. Why is that relevant? Because if you only coach clients on two domains, you can't be as effective as you coach on three. Right? If you don't have recovery as part of your skill set, you, truth be told, you cannot be as effective a coach as if you've got all three. If I've got four, five, then I become a broader coach. And you're becoming a lifestyle coach, not a movement coach. So what's the benefit to the individual? One is, and, and like any toolkit, I don't need to bring it out every five seconds and go, oh, I've got a hammer. I don't need to bang an ale in. I don't need to bring it out. But you know, most people, you will get their well-being to a much heightened state by increasing their movement quality and frequency and their nutritional quality. But not everyone. And if you're working with clients over the age of 35, then what you will see is the value of recovery, and let's call this the ability to disengage, engage digestion, go into sleep cycles, will come up to equal, if not greater. Right? So human physiology up until you know the, the point of reproduction is, is pretty bulletproof. We've got stem cells coming out of our ears, testosterone for males, estrogen for females. Then you get into this sort of andropause, perimenopausal, where, where life ain't so good anymore. The body's given you a chance to reproduce. Stuff starts to go downhill rapidly. And the process of recovery or recouping energy becomes absolutely biologically critical. So if you're someone who's got away without ever coaching on sleep, has got away without coaching on, on 
breathing on breaks on relationships with caffeine and alcohol then you're probably either training young people or you're not training people over such a long period of time that you've been able to engage success or you're coaching people who are in a, a fantastic state of flow which might also be true so my, my first point to that be you will be a better coach at what you do now can you commercialize that straight away not necessarily you can you can rebrand yourself as more of a lifestyle coach you can say I'm capable in stress resilience training and add that to your 17 kettlebell qualifications you've got underneath your name. Uh, won't have a great market value. Why I built this course is partly for, for more effective coaching within the gym environment, but also interested in selling skills online and in corporate environments. So I, I spend a lot of my time doing talks to organizations because we've already got a pretty educated person by the time they've turned up in the gym. Right, so if you've never done a talk to a room full of people who don't go to the gym, you, you will be staggered by what is understood about health and well-being and what is misunderstood. You know, and so we have a biased population by the fact they've already understood they need to do something. They've already understood the gym is a place where they may or may not fit in. And that's why we're stuck at 13, 14, 15% population. What I'm talking about is a product that you can then deliver to the other 87%. And that could be online or that could be going to offices of organizations and delivering a lunchtime talk on stress resilience, which I promise you is going to be more interesting to them than a talk on, on this is 15 different ways to, to get your body fat from 11% to nine. Yeah. And that's me being pious, right? So I know that, that lots of PTs in your group will do real good health and well-being work and will be at differing levels, but it's about what is the commercial opportunity of, of, of owning the well-being space from the fitness perspective? If I go and do a lunchtime talk at an organization, be me from my you know exercise physiology background, there'll be a life coach, there'll be a physio, there'll be a doctor. It's a wild west. There's no well-being professional. And I think fitness movement prescription is probably the most complicated of the domains. So fitness, adding nutrition, then adding stress resilience, you know, recovery, whatever you want to call it, is the most logical way to build a complete well-being practitioner versus fragmenting ever further. Just on this, because I know we're going to move this forward into, I suppose, wrapping this up at the end of going, right, well, how can I take all of that and put that into a service or yeah. and so on, which you just touched on there. And I want to touch back on sleep and so on and how that's going to play a factor, because clearly most coaches start to understand that normally the contextual cue for a lot of their clients, or for some of them especially, is for them to go again, in their words, off track from a behavior change perspective, will have a hell of a lot to do with their lack of sleep or poor quality sleep and so on. And yeah. um, we do have a question from free PTs that I think is important whilst we're on the stress resilience side of it that we cover. Um, so they put that we all have clients who struggle with their mental health. We tend to typically listen and become a sounding board. If you were to give one piece of key advice to supporting this, what would it be? Taking into account, this is not an area any of us specialize in. That's a brilliant question. I, I think mental health is a really tricky area because people always think to change mental health, you've got to change mindset. I've got to coach you. And, and of course, it's a sensitive area. If you get it wrong, there can be catastrophic consequences. So first and foremost, and, and I do cover this in the course, you need a red flag system when the things you're hearing reaches a point where you need to refer that out. Yeah. In the same way as I've, I'm training someone and they've got pain, I need a physio input, you know, ache different. There's a threshold when I pass the buck. So I think first and foremost, recognizing that the, the sort of hard line between that requires clinical referral and that doesn't is important. I think we've got to look at mental health and say that if you look, if you work with a good psychologist recently, they'll talk about a psychophysiological model, which is how much of my mental health has been driven by my physiology. Right? So if I 
if if the three of us went and had a big old night out in the town tonight, you know, which would be marvellous, and we stayed out drinking alcohol, we stayed up all night, and we wake up the following morning, w will we have a good mood state? You know, probably not, because of the withdrawal of alcohol plus the fatigue. And fatigue's a really interesting thing for me, because fatigue will manifest in lots of different ways, but but fatigue is one of the key diagnostic criteria of depression. And, and when most people think about mental health, it's a spectrum in the same way as health's on a spectrum from flourishing and everything being amazing to premature death. But mental health's on a spectrum as well from flourishing, you know, high mood state, good quality thinking, you know, great emotional relationships to, you know, a clinical grade, you know, mental health disorder. And, and most people are in the middle. So we're all, we all have mental health as a crucial phrase and it, and it wavers much like physical health, but it's deeply entwined. And one of the key diagnostic criteria for, for depression is fatigue. You've got people going in to doctor's offices with a seven minute consultation window saying, I wake up in the morning without any drive. I can't see the, the point in anything, etc." If I keep someone awake for three, four days, they'll feel similar to some of those things. Now, I'm not saying all depression is being misdiagnosed as fatigue, but what we've got is the opportunity to say, look, I hear you about those things and sharing and talking is still you know, point number one with all mental health. What I'm going to try and do is create more available energy so that whatever's going on will affect you less. Same principle if it's chemotherapy, same principle if it's IBS. I want to release more available energy so the symptom you're suffering from will affect you less. And if I release more energy physiologically, we see a massive impact on neurology and mood state. I've seen people managing bipolar through exercise and nutrition alone. I've seen people, again, at acute clinical, my, my wife's a mental health um, lawyer, so she works with the, the, the deep end of the spectrum. And their diet, their movement, their sleep plays a major role in how aggressive their symptoms are because our physiology drives our psychology. And vice versa. If I think poorly, my physiology mirrors. So I think that the, when we're talking about mental health, we can say, look, first and foremost, being that sounding board, being that person with an open question, but not always a, a preset intervention is critical. Secondly, I hear you. I'm not a specialist in mental health. What I'm going to do is work on habits and behaviors that are going to make you more energy. And if we've got that more energy, I hope that your mood state will improve as a result of that. And that, that allows me actually to be a mental health expert to a degree. That allows me to be an IBS expert. That allows me to be any expert. Because if I improve your underlying physiology, your, your issue X will get better. You know, we got to look at anxiety is, is almost a chronically switched on stress response. I talked about being on that plane earlier and, and catastrophizing the plane's going to crash and my physiology mirroring that. Someone with an anxiety is effectively catastrophizing everything to the point where their, their, their brain is then looking for more stresses and it becomes a very difficult cycle to break. The, the value of interventions that drive more parasympathetic tone for anxiety is unbelievable. Why is Wim Hof on BBC and, and doing every podcast under the sun? Because cold water therapy will engage vagal tone because your body's trying to preserve its life. So it slows your physiology down. Combined with breathing, slows your physiology down. Combined with visualization, slows it down. He's got a, a physiological pill for reducing anxiety. And I've seen lots of people managing their anxiety through cold water immersion therapy. Why is meditation people's salvation? Because that form of breath work amongst other things, down-regulates the brain from looking for danger, but it down-regulates my physiology. So if you've got your PT who's able to strategically bring in cold water therapy, sauna, breath work, meditation, you're starting to give them a toolkit that means they can be that complete end-to-end, -end, but they've just got to have a bit of understanding about the context of when and how. Mm.
Yeah, and it's measuring that, isn't it? That, that traffic light system obviously will be your identifier of what to do and when. And I suppose it's being clearly this always depends and being as client-centered as possible. And I think what you've put in there as well from the question is being the sounding board and listening. At the end of the day, that's the core principle of being a great coach at the end of the day. Um, but having some type of framework there that you can rely on and it can lead you in the right path to be client-centered for that specific person is huge. That's huge because a lot of it, I think a lot of it, and I've probably been guilty of this in the past, is you want to help, so you want to suggest, you want to give advice, but sometimes that's not the best option, even if that's from your experience or even if you've personally gone through something very similar. And I think that's where a lot of PTs kind of do, but it sounds like you're doing the right thing or similar, but obviously that response then from you, Olive, is brilliant for them to kind of take away and identify. And obviously we'll share more about the course and stuff. Yeah, um, I think it's 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 being, you know, how much of my knowledge do I share per client consultation? None. You know, fundamentally, it's not it's not the, the let me tell you all about the physiology. You know, this, this, we're talking peer to peer here. So, you know, the, the image of an iceberg is absolutely the right image. You know, all this information sits below. So I'm going to give you the, the one bit of advice that's going to be the most impactful. And, and what where where I think that the future can lie is that one piece of advice may not be in the movement domain. It may not be nutritional. No. It may be other. But, you know, listening is a number one and you may not be in the place to give any advice or coach out any advice in that first session but having an intervention toolkit that includes his you know i can recommend 100 things movement wise i can recommend 100 things you know nutrition wise but i should have 100 things to, to make your body recover and, and buffer stress better yeah. um, but you may only bring out one of them yeah god i could delve into this because this at the end of the day the the, the core principle of this is understanding the person and coaching effectively off the back of that understanding, helping them become self-aware, solve their own problems. And the interventions come off the back of that understanding. But I think where it lacks, as you've kind of said, is for a PT to have something to find confidence in, to rely on and go, actually, if I identify this, this, and this, this is where it should lead me to asking this type of questioning, if that makes sense. Totally. And so in the, in the course, I built a crib sheet that guides you through that conversation because yeah. I didn't want to leave it to chance, but Again, your, your point again, it's we're talking about limiting factors. Right? So in science, if I if I change a factor that's not a limiting factor, it doesn't change the outcome. You know, so if someone moves loads, nourishes well, doesn't sleep, change sleep and you change everything for them. Yeah. And, and what, what we're trying to do is get the coach to, to have that limiting factor approach, not to go, let me load more movement on top of movement, or you're not losing weight because uh, you know you're at 75% heart rate, let's go to 85%. I'm not creating enough post-exercise oxygen consumption, let's slaughter you with hip. If it if if they're doing well in that domain, it isn't the solution because it wasn't the problem. Yeah, and there's a reason why. And I used to get frustrated by this, but when you used to go when you go to your doctor and you go with a specific problem or a specific disease or a lifestyle disease or whatever, and there's hundreds of thousands of different diseases with different millions and millions of different people, they always turn around. Well, it depends. Like it might not be this. It might be this. It might. This is how I might treat it. This might. And you get frustrated by that because you want to be told a specific answer to it don't you totally um, totally it's very much like this in this sense from a coaching perspective but cool we mentioned before fatigue and sleep playing a massive role in that where clearly a lot of coaches are it's becoming common sense for them that this is a huge contextual cue for behavior change and so on yeah. where, where do you think a kind of fit pro pt plays a role in kind of sleep coaching i think sleep can be overcomplicated and and, and hugely brought to a simple basis you know i think understanding the physiology of the two main reasons we fall asleep. So understanding circadian rhythm and understanding 
sleep pressure has has great value to say look you know if you've got someone who doesn't wake up restored and there's a good starting point whether sleep's effective or not regardless whether they wear a whoop or a aura ring or they map you know their, their sleep they wake up unrefreshed is there an opportunity to get more quality sleep um but the things that affect sleep are mostly environmental behavioral right so not, most people don't have a sort of a chronic insomnia they have an, a poor relationship with caffeine which they haven't understood most people have not understood the role of alcohol in decreasing muscle tension but increasing neurological stimulation so alcohol helps my sleep latency fall asleep but kills my sleep depth so most people think of a nightcap or a couple of glasses to unwind after a day spent breathing upper respiratory tight through my, my shoulders boom alcohol works to take that feeling away but but it, it kills the sleep once i'm asleep most people don't understand again that without understanding circadian rhythm and 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 light, as in I need light in the morning when my cortisol is released to get it down. I need dark and cool in the evening to get my melatonin coming back up. When we understand the interplay of those two hormones, suddenly blue light blockers make sense. Suddenly 90 minutes of sleep hygiene without uh, administrating screens makes sense. Suddenly my digestive pattern makes sense. If I want to take someone's sleep, you know, in most cases, it'll be driven by a combination of the environment they're in being disruptive to a natural sleep cycle or habits and behaviors they have or habits and behaviors they don't have. And if I'm sat there with my toolkit and someone's going, I don't sleep well, I'm going, oh, it's blue light. Well, not if they're not doing blue light or if it's caffeine, not if they drink decaf or, you know, it's sleep hygiene, not if they have a lovely 90 minutes before bed. So I need, I need a range of things that again, allows me to get to that limiting factor approach. But I, I don't think I've ever met someone who sleeps poorly where I haven't found something in the general domain that they were doing that would directly affect their sleep. Mm. Um, and then you've got the coach's chance to go, I can't say whether that's causative. So I can't say whether your, you know, your relationship with caffeine is the reason you're not falling asleep properly. But what I'd like to say is it's logical. So let's exclude that and let's let's see how you go for a six week period. Um, and and you know we know the benefit of the coaches, not every rule applies to every person. Some people drink caffeine and sleep fine. Some people don't detoxify caffeine because they've got a, a genetic uh, in, inadequacy to do so. So a morning coffee is still playing its role as, as they fall asleep at 10.30. Mm. So I think I, I think sleep coaching should be absolutely a part of every individual guiding people on lifestyles skill set. And and the fact that it isn't and, and hasn't been sort of driven is is a, is of concern to me, uh, particularly working in clinical practice where if you don't sleep well, you'll be dysfunctional. And of course, I'll wake up tired, so I don't want to exercise. And of course, if I'm tired, I want more refined carbohydrate. And people walking around going, I've got no willpower. You're knackered, right? You're primal. If you're knackered, you're going to want refined carbohydrate and you're not going to want to move. Um, and of course, breaking those patterns is absolutely fundamental to getting that sleep back on track anyway. I'm ranting. No, no, no. It's good. Um, <laughs> it's a good rant. Yeah, it's a great rant. Nick, uh, <laughs> any questions on that, Paul? No, no, no. Just taking it all in. <laughs> yeah. um just off the back of that i thought obviously we've talked about loads we've touched on stress stress resilience we've touched a little bit on well-being but we'll delve into that a little bit more in a minute obviously we've talked about just sleep and fatigue and how it plays a role and i suppose where the role comes back in for a coach which is being a coach which is asking great questions self-reflection helping the client i suppose go through a um a troubleshooting guide in their own yes. mind of these well, types of um, things that they could be doing better and then then they act on them measure them and see what happens from there so it's just good coaching um so we've got all of that is there any kind of main kind of skill gaps that you see or just gaps 
within from a, from a fitness professional perspective like what are the missing pieces within kind of the modern kind of fitness professional and off the back of that if that whatever that missing piece is in your opinion what's the future for for fitness professionals within the wellness industry i think it's a great it's a challenging question that one i think there's still a great career within fitness doing fitness right so you know we're, we're where i'm coming from is what about the 87 percent not in the gym you know what are we just are we just making healthy well people more healthy and, and more well or are we really tapping into the fact we've got a lifestyle disease epidemic a, an obesity epidemic a diabetes epidemic and that group haven't traditionally engaged in in the the fitness community until they've got such a chronic problem that they're in a special populations category right so i'm interested in preclinical, which is everyone we're all getting unwell you know human physiology pretty much degenerates from the day it's born i'm interested in slowing that down and, and optimizing it um what's the, the future i think for, for there's more and more people interested in how they own accountability for how they feel and function and we recognize medicine it's not medicine's job to keep me well it's medicine's job to bring me from dysfunctional back to non-dysfunctional you know what's the definition of well well, the World Health Organization says it's a complete state of mental, physical, and emotional well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. That's not your doctor's view. Their job is to take you from your dysfunctional to not dysfunctional. They, they don't have in seven minutes the scope, the culture, or the training to optimize you. So the optimizing of me is in making me flourish, making me not become unwell, has sat purely with me, but I've never been told that. So individuals don't own accountability for their own well-being. And when it goes wrong, they buy products. So I don't feel well, I'll take a B vitamin injection. I don't feel well, I'll do meditation. And so no one's curating the average person's well-being journey. You're coming back to that definition of well-being. No one's helping people get the blend right between all the, the factors that positively affect your physiology versus those that negatively. No one's getting that. No one's helping individuals with that. Yeah. So I think there's an opportunity within fitness to step into the well-being space, both within and outside of the gym environment by being an expert in how we move, how we nourish, and how we recover. And I would put stress and sleep within recovery. Equally, there's some skills in mindset and toxicity, I think are, are relevant. And, and toxicity, I'm talking about environment, light, pollution, etc. But those three effectively make you a compelling coach. And most people, particularly those outside of the gym, have low health literacy around one, two, or all three of those topics. Mm. And if you go to the average person, they've curated their lifestyle out of a dinner party conversation here and a you know and an article i read in gq there and and my sister tried this and that was good so the supplements they take the movement strategy their nutritional strategy their sleep strategy is a hopscotch of random stuff hmm. why would if those factors are the biggest single determinant of how long i'll live and how well i live why would i not entrust some guidance to a professional so for me the biggest missing piece of, of skill within the fitness industry is the science of recovery, which I've dressed up under the guise of stress and that allows me the recovery conversation. And that's why I wrote this course first. And if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, it's probably you know, the best bit of legacy of the, the 23 years of, of learning I've had. You know, So that, that piece I felt was the missing piece. And I feel that piece allows a fitness professional to commercialize their skills outside of a gym, in a forward thinking gym, or directly into corporate offices if they've got the nails to do so. Which is perfect. I'm just going to ask a question. You brought that to a point. Um, in that sense, we've talked a lot recently, haven't we, Nick? Sorry for all my pop-ups here. Um, 
we've talked a lot recently to PTs who are not just wanting to rely on social media marketing for their business and they want to get into local businesses and clearly post pandemic like they know there is going to be or we hope there is going to be an inherent kind of focus on well-being within offices, within corporate well-being. You know this. This is your totally, point. totally. Um, so I'm stepping into your world by saying this. But personal trainers, what we, what we, what I used to do in the city centre of Manchester, I used to go and find HR and I used to basically build a relationship. And then I used to go right. Well, what did he struggle with? Well, low back care because I've done that qualification, or nutrition because I've done that qualification. Right. Let me come and do some seminars and so on. How do we take everything you've talked about today? let's say they enroll on future practice and, and come onto the course and, and they qualify. How do we take all of that? And A, to jump on the back of Nick's question before, commercialize it. But I suppose, how do I get into well-being into the corporate world, for example, and then enhance my personal training business off the back of it? Yeah, so that's the, that's the killer question because yeah. it's not that easy. No. Um, quick caveat on time. I might, I might not be able to go much beyond three. So just, just as a, this might be... I think that you know the first foremost thing is you got we've got to stop talking about fitness and nutrition and start talking about what people are interested in because people aren't right it's people are interested in how they feel so i go into corporates i talk about energy i'm going to increase your energy i talk about stress resilience i'm going to make you more resilient to stress i'm going to increase your performance and it just so happens the way i'm going to do that is by changing how you move how you nourish how you sleep or, or how you deal with stress so if we want to go to corporate well-being we have to get over the fact people are interested in the world that we're fascinated by yeah. they're not they're not interested at all. In fact, the opposite. They're bored of it and they've been excluded from it. And, and they in many ways have false judgments. Maybe they're not all false. So I talk about feeling and I translate that feeling into a business benefit. As in, I will give your people more energy. That will reduce absenteeism. That will increase performance. You to judge that, not me. Then I go in and I'm not talking about movement. I'm not talking about nutrition. I'm not talking about sleep recovery. I'm talking about lifestyle. So I go in as a lifestyle professional talking about energy. And there's my immediate who isn't interested in that yeah. now if i if they're not that interested then i might go and do the first one for free but the second one i talked about this on on a recent um future practice uh, community discussion you know first one will be 500 pounds you know and then and then kind of build that up and there are professionals in this sector doing lunchtime talks for for 2500 3000 pounds for a lunchtime talk mm. now they have they are literally talking about this is the benefit of movement. This is the benefit of a plant-based diet, blood sugar control, fasting, not fasting. And this is how you fall asleep. But they're talking to an audience who haven't had that information in one setting compressed together previously and in a way that is all doable. This isn't pie in the sky stuff. So I think that there is a thirst within corporates. And we, we looked at um, most companies called SMEs, small to medium enterprises. There's a million of them. And, and 85%, I think, don't have any well-being infrastructure or strategy whatsoever. If you're in a local gym that says, listen, I'll come and do a talk on increasing the energy of your employees. You know, if you can't get them for free, then then you're never going to get it because you're not much of a salesperson and, and you've got to sell. But fundamentally, you know, and again, without being a salesman myself, I put a full presentation with all the graphics in the course at the end of the course. So there's a turnkey solution. So you don't have to go and write one because to give people a chance of doing this, they probably want to see what is the type of talk that I would do if I'm going to a lunchtime corporate, for example. Mm. So I think, I think A, we've got to move to, to, to summarize it, we've got to move to benefit, not to process. And we've got to, we've got to, we've got to test it, we've got to be good at it. But then if we're pricing it, people say, oh, it's 500 pounds an hour, or thousand pounds an hour. It's not. If I'm talking to 20 people, each of whom is worth 300,000 pounds to a business and I make them 1% more effective, then I can start charging thousands of pounds for that talk. Okay. Brilliant. 
Brilliant. That kind of capped it off exactly where we wanted it to go as well. And I'm sure we could talk more and add more to this. Um, I think just off the back of this, well, first of all, thanks for everything that you've kind of just shared. And it, that was so valuable a session for the guys to kind of look back on, watch back and, and kind of listen to now. It's been absolute class. Um, from my perspective, obviously, I've started the course as well, so I can share my experience with the guys. I've actually started it now. Um, so I can share my experience with the guys and I'll make sure that I put all relevant links and um, things that you, you want me to kind of put to the guys into the group so we can kind of talk about it more and, and they can get in front of the future practice course and the stress response course. Right. Brilliant. And again, re re really appreciate you both having me on and, and oh, the work you're doing. Thanks so much for your time. If we have any more questions off the back of this, I'm sure there'll be more, then obviously I'll throw them your way. Throw them in. I'd love to answer them. Hope, hope, hope people have got something from it. But again, um, really appreciate it, gang. And uh, I'll see you both as soon as possible, hopefully. Top man. Thanks so much, mate. Great stuff. Bye.